This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter the offer code SOSMART at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode... 54. You are a pile of atoms. When you eat vanilla pudding, which is also a pile of atoms, you are really just putting those atoms next to your atoms and waiting for some of them to trade places. If things had turned out differently back when your mom had that second glass of wine while your dad told that story about when he sat on a jellyfish while skinny dipping, the same atoms that glom together to make your bones and your skin and your tongue and your brain could have been rearranged to make many other things. Carbon and oxygen and hydrogen, the whole collection of elements that make up your body, right down to the vanadium and arsenic, could be popped off of you, collected and reused to make something else, if such a seemingly impossible technology existed. Like a cosmic box of Legos, the building blocks of matter can take the shape of every form we know of, from mountains to monkeys. And if you think about this long enough, you might stumble into the same odd questions scientists and philosophers ask from time to time. If we had an atom-exchanging machine and traded one atom at a time from your body with an atom from the body of, say, Edward James Olmos, at what point would you cease to be you and Olmos cease to be Edward James? During that process, would you lose your mind and gain his At some point, would each person's thoughts and dreams and memories change hands? That weird feeling produced by this thought experiment reveals something about the way you see yourself and others. You have this innate sense that there's something special within living things, especially people, and most especially yourself. Even if you're a hardcore materialist, you can't prevent this little tug in your gut that makes you feel something might exist beyond the flesh, something not made of atoms. To you, living things seem to have an essence that is more than the sum of their parts. And according to our guest in this episode, Bruce Hood, this is an illusion. My name is David McCraney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And after this break, you will hear Bruce Hood, author of The Self-Illusion, explain why we may or may not actually have a self. 
More on that after this. You Are Not So Smart is supported by Wealthfront, the automated investment service that makes it easy to invest your money the right way. Wealthfront software manages your money by using investment strategies that were previously only available to the wealthiest investors for just one quarter of the cost of using a traditional advisor. Wealthfront monitors your account 24-7, automatically rebalancing your portfolio, reinvesting dividends, and working to maximize your after-tax returns. Wealthfront is also overseen by a team of investment experts, the same experts who launched the Index Fund Revolution and who've written some of the most important books in finance. In case you're still not convinced, you should know that Wealthfront manages more than $2 billion in client assets and has saved millions of dollars on taxes for its clients. So with Wealthfront watching over your investments every day, what will you do with all your extra time? Visit Wealthfront.com slash so smart to get your first $10,000 managed for free. Wealthfront Incorporated is an SEC registered investment advisor. Broker services are offered through Wealthfront Brokerage Corporation, member FNRA and SIPC. This is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities. Investing in securities involves risks and there is the possibility of losing money. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please visit Wealthfront.com to read their full disclosure. I have learned so much from the Great Courses series, Behavioral Economics, When Psychology and Economics Collide, taught by Professor Scott Hutel. You know I love learning about how the mind works. I love finding explanations about why we behave the way that we do. And all of these Great Courses series that we've talked about on the show, the ones that you've been able to get at 80% off, have all been great. But this one is really specifically stuff that you probably have never, ever ever, ever, ever heard about because it gets deep into all the latest discoveries in behavioral economics. It draws on methods from psychology, sociology, neurology, and economics, and he offers profound insights into how humans approach and ultimately make decisions. He also provides these powerful and practical tools to make better and more satisfying decisions in your own life. So it's not just a bunch of academic stuff. It's also useful. This is one of the great courses, which is celebrating their 25th anniversary. And they have lecture series in over 500 subjects, including history, science, art, philosophy, and music. They're all available in DVDs, CDs, streaming, digital downloads, or the great courses app. But right now with my special offer for you are not so smart listeners only, you can order from eight of their best selling courses, including behavioral economics, and you can get 80% off of the original price by going to thegreatcourses.com slash smart. But you have to do this now. It's a limited time. It doesn't stay there forever. People ask about it and they say, why is it gone? And I say, because you didn't go and get it when I told you to get it. Get 80% off by going to thegreatcourses.com slash smart. And now we return to our program. At the beginning of this broadcast, what you heard was me reading from an excerpt from a part of one of my books and also a part of an article that I wrote to go along with this interview that you're about to hear when it originally was broadcast way back in episode four 
Oh, wow. So much time has passed. So much has been learned. But way back then, I knew I wanted to have Bruce Hood on the show. And since a lot of people have just now started listening and most people just sort of listened to the last episode and move forward from there, I wanted to make sure I went back and got this one of my favorite interviews and sort of represent it if you don't remember it and give it to you for the first time if you never have heard it. Man, Bruce Hood is such a cool person. And you'll hear him talk all about his book, The Self illusion, which is great. I highly recommend it. It's all about how the ideas of materialism and dualism are being explored by modern science. And he, Hood, he's a superstar of psychology right now. He's the director of the Bristol Cognitive Development Center in the Experimental Psychology Department at the University of Bristol. He's been on TV many, many times. You can find him on YouTube. Uh, He appears on the BBC. He's got other books. He's a really interesting person with some really cool ideas coming out of psychology and neuroscience. Let's repick his brain. Bruce, in your book, you propose that science has uncovered a lot of evidence to suggest our sense of self is an illusion. What Mm. do you, what do you mean when you say uh, illusion? Well, I think that's probably the first big question um, that people ask me because um, there are different connotations of the word illusion. Um, I prefer the, the the idea that an illusion is an experience that is not what it seems. So I'm not saying that there isn't an experience of having a, a self, uh, but that ex- experience is, is, is um, you know, it's not what it seems is what I'm arguing. So um, we know this really... It's true because if you think about um, other kinds of illusions, such as visual illusions, uh, we can measure you know two lines that look different and show they're in fact the same, or or vice versa, or we can we can you know we can see uh, figures which aren't really there. So th- this is a common experience in in visual perception to talk about uh, the way that. Uh, uh, we can see illusions. But in fact, a lot of perception is illusory um, because the brain is always constructing uh, some interpretation of the event. And that interpretation is not always faithfully true. So there is an argument to 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 sort of even claim that actually all of perception is an illusory kind of experience to some extent. And that's not saying that there's no connection to reality at all, but it is one which is interpreted and abstracted. So um, what I'm saying is the self, uh, this common experience that everyone has, uh, typically uh, we, we usually think of ourself as inhabiting a body, being coherent, being an individual, um, having free will, all these components of, of the self is, is our common experience. But I would argue that the science reveals that each of those to some extent is illusory. So when I move my arm uh, mm. and I will myself to move my arm, what is doing the willing? That's right. And this is this is also one of the big questions. You know, who who it's very difficult to, to actually not use the language of self all the time when we're we're thinking about this. Um, well, in case of moving your arm, um, there is a series of unconscious processes. Um, you know, an example came to mind triggered by uh, what I had just said. Um, you felt of an example to to address that. Uh, probably one that you had been mulling over, not necessarily consciously, but one which had been processed. And at some point, this uh, uh, this urge to move your arm happened. You're probably familiar with um, the work of Leibet, um, who's shown that motor acts, typically uh, such as wanting to move your arm, um, the conscious point where you when you think you're doing it, 
uh, is a good half second after your brain has already prepared the, the action. So in that particular instance, that would be an example where your, your conscious self is actually not initiating the movement. It's actually occurring uh, to some extent after it. Um, I'm not suggesting that all actions and thoughts work that way. Uh, I'm just saying that there can be quite a disconnect between what you think you're doing and what's actually happening. That's probably one of the weirdest things in the world is to is when you read about the um, the fact that there was something happening before you realized it. Whenever you uh, whenever you move your parts of your body around, and it makes it seem it's a pretty creepy concept, really. It's a pretty creepy concept, but you know we shouldn't be too surprised. And the, I mean, the thing is that. Um, we experience consciousness as um, immediate, don't we? I mean, we, we have this sense of being in the here and now. Um, but conscious experiences typically build up over time. Uh, and certainly motor acts have to be built up over time. So there isn't a, a single point where suddenly something enters consciousness, as it were. So I think that that's, again, part of the illusion. Not only that we're uh, uh, willing the action, but... To some extent, uh, it's, it's taking some time to, to emerge. I agree. These are difficult ideas, and they certainly don't seem to fit with everyone's common experience. But, of course, most of, a lot of our common experience is not what it seems. If you just take vision again, uh, you know, we see the world as, as a unified, rich, detailed uh, environment. But, of course, you're only really processing the, the central part of your visual field. There are two black holes the size of tennis balls, often, which is what corresponds to your blind spot. And, of course, every time you move your eyes, you're effectively blind. So, uh, so every time you make an eye movement, your brain shuts off the visual information. But you're never aware of that. Uh, when you add it up, you're blind for about two or three hours of every waking day. But you would never know that. Yes, and uh, in the book you talk about uh, look, in a, look in a mirror and move your eyes from side to side and you, you're unable to see the motion, but if you look at another person and ask them to do the same thing, you will, yeah. you will be able to see the motion. So you should ask yourself, why is, it, why is my brain editing that out? Exactly. It's very creepy, isn't it? I mean, you, you basically get them to focus on their left eye, then focus on, the right, on their right eye, and then move backwards and forwards. Uh, it's not something people really immediately, when they see it, then they think something's very spooky. <laughs> uh, but yes, the brain has to do that because otherwise you get seasick. Because um, the visual, if you think about it, it's like taking a camera and, and panning very quickly. The whole field would blur. So you'd be constantly seeing this blurred image. So the brain edits that out in order to maintain the perception of a coherent world. Well, could you talk a little bit about your hamster study? Uh, just sort of explain the, your uh, interesting copying study and the way people react to it. Right. Well, this is still under review, so we're, we're, I, I don't want to tempt fate on it. But uh, yeah, we have actually um, talked about this a few times at conferences and presented this data. Uh, yeah, we, um, we're interested in uh, – it's really a thought experiment. It comes from the ideas of uh, philosophers like Derek Parfit, uh, but also H.G. Uh, Wells and, and even Star Trek to some extent. And this is the idea about transporter machines malfunctioning uh, and making identical duplicates. And that's a kind of interesting idea. If you, if you imagine that you could create a machine which could copy you down to the, you know, the individual molecule and atom, um, would this individual have the same mind? Well, if you're a materialist like I am, and I believe the mind is not a spiritual thing, I think it's a product of a very complex uh, biological computer that we call the brain, then it must be the same. But then, of course, that introduces all sorts of paradoxes. So we took this idea um, about the idea of duplicating and uh, we wanted to test when do children start to have this idea that, or, or share the notion that many adults have, that you can't duplicate the mind. Um, and what we did is we convinced them we have these two kind of scientific-looking boxes with lots of lights and wires and 
buzzes and noises. And um, we put a, a toy in one and we'd start the machine up. And then the second box, after a couple of seconds, would start by itself. And then when you open it up, there's an identical toy in the other uh, compartment. So they now see two toys and the children spontaneously think, oh, this must be like a photocopier for objects. Now, these are these are five year olds. Uh, so they're quite, you know, we can, they're quite gullible, but that's not the point of the experiment. The point is to convince them that we've got a machine which can copy anything. And we ask them, are they say the same? And they say, yes, absolutely identical. Then comes the interesting part. Then we introduce them to our pet hamster. And uh, we tell them a few things about the hamster. We say that it's got, um, I don't know, it's got marble in its tummy and it's got a broken tooth. Um, and then we show it a picture or we whisper the name. So we're giving the hamster physical states, you know, marble in the tummy, but also mental states, you know, telling it a name or showing it a picture. So we pop the hamster into one side of the, the machine, turn it on again, and lo and behold, when we t- open up the second compartment, there are now two identical looking hamsters. In fact, they're, they're Russian hamsters that we, you know, they're, they're siblings that we have. And by the way, it's all an illusion. It's a trick. There's someone feeding in stuff in the back. We don't actually have a duplicating okay. machine. Good, good. As much as I would like, I wouldn't be sitting here doing that. I'd be sitting on piles of gold and diamonds. Right. But um, no, it's, it's an illusion. Uh, but it gets, it allows you to kind of, um, it allows you to create a demonstration to get at what is really a difficult thought idea, you know, a thought experiment that, that you know, what, you know, can you duplicate a hamster? So the question we then ask them, does this hamster have the same physical attributes as the first hamster? Does it have the same mental attributes? And what, we're, what we found is that certainly by five, six years of age, children are already showing um, the, the, the attribution that it doesn't have the same mind. It can have the same physical parts. So they understand that physical things can be duplicated, but they're thinking the mind must be something separate. And the effect is even stronger when you give the first hamster a name, an identity. And I think that fits very much with what um, adults think as well, that there's something um, wrong about the idea that you can have somebody else who has exactly the same mind. And so duplication, we're, 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 allow, you know, we're happy to think that can happen for physical things, but not for mental states. So this is what we call um, dualism, mind-body dualism, the idea that the mind is separate to the body. And that, of course, fits with uh, Descartes, the philosopher in the 17th century, who talked about the mind and body being separate. So yeah, we, we, uh, we use experiments to tease out these uh, ideas, these complex ideas, and when they start to emerge in children. So would you say your uh, research lends credit to the idea that that sense of dualism, the sense that the self is some sort of um, extra physical uh, thing, is part of our, our natural intuition, or is it something that's influenced by culture? Oh, I think it's part of our natural intuition. I think that um, there's a good distinction you can draw when talking about the self uh, between the I and the me. And this is a distinction that William James drew. So uh, our conscious awareness, you know, your listeners as they're listening to my voice and thinking about the, the odd things I'm saying, that is the I experience of the self. That's the conscious appraisal. Um, but if I was to ask each listener, you know, tell me where you were born, what did you have for lunch yesterday, that's the me, that's the autobiographical memory. And so the I and the me, I think, are, 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 are separate types of ideas. Now, I think that I is there very early, um, and, and I, I would hazard a guess that babies, as soon as they're moving around and becoming aware of their perceptual world around them, they're experiencing that consciously. Um, but I'm not convinced that they have a me. I don't think they have an autobiographical sense of who they are. And frankly, how could they when they're only a couple of minutes old? Um, when you ask people what's their earliest memories, it's uh, well known that very few people can remember anything before their second birthday. So I think that the sense of self, the me, 
um, starts to emerge as children start to become, get a sense of their own self-identity. So self is, is allows you to construct um, a narrative of who you are, where you've been, and how it all fits together as a story of who you are. So both the, the I and the me are aspects of the self, but they involve different components in a sense. So when you use the word illusion, are you saying that the, the self doesn't exist or that are you saying that the self is an, a concept and a construct? It's just an idea. And that- yeah, it, it's a construct. It's a, it's, it's a narrative generated by the brain. It's a characterization which allows you to make sense of things and plan and actually interact with each other because you couldn't inter- interact with a multitude of influences. Uh, it would just be overwhelming for a brain. So we, we have this sense of identities and, and self. Um, but I should point out that, you know, illusions can still be very real in the brain. So I, I think I talk about that in the opening, uh, showing that a, a typical visual illusion is one of these ones where you see a, a square, which actually isn't really there. It's just made out of the, the contours of all the shapes around it. Now, the, the, the spooky thing is, is that if you go into the brain, you can find, um, pat, you know, you can find networks of neurons, which are firing to that imaginary square. So the brain um, is still registering it, even though objectively it isn't out there in the world. So I think that that's something that is quite mind blowing. That you know, even so though something isn't actually there, if you're perceiving it, then the brain is treating it as if it could be. So why did we um, evolve this uh, self illusion? What advantage does it provide us broadly? Yeah, well, I think this is um, a, well. There, if we talk about the I and the me again, I think the I, that that conscious awareness is a way of keeping track of the outcomes of all the unconscious processes that are driving our behaviors. So we feel the author, you know, the authorship of action. We feel we are the ones instigating. We are making the choices and decisions. Of course, there are lots of unconscious processes which are feeding into that decision-making all the time, yet we feel consciously that we are doing it. And so this enables us to keep track of the multitude of hidden processes. And that's you know, that's how we know what we like and what our preferences are and what we don't like. So that's the I. Um, when it comes to the me, again, I think having a characterization of who you are allows you to interact and know what you like and plan for the future. So having this sort of summary of, of experiences, both in terms of the unconscious processes, which you know, feed into every decision you, you've made, and also a kind of narrative or autobiography of who you are, uh, just makes life a lot easier to live, having these sort of summaries. So um, why do we not see this sort of um, uh, self-illusion in other animals? Why does it seem to be something that's primarily human? Well, we don't know that for sure, do we? Because, I mean, that it's getting to the question of, of measuring conscious awareness. And, you know, as much as we'd like to try, we really can't get inside the, the, the consciousness of, of animals. And I suspect, like many other thinkers, that there's a varying degree of consciousness. I don't think that worms are conscious or aphids are conscious. But okay. I can imagine that, you know, as you move up the, the animal tree, that you start to approximate, approximate more uh, what it is to have human consciousness. But uh, it wouldn't be the same as, as a chimpanzee's or, or, you know, a gazelle. Um, they're th- clearly consciousness, uh, and I don't know where it came from or how it evolved, um, so I haven't got the answer for that, but uh, it is something that uh, we use very effectively to, you know, plan our actions. It gives us a lot of flexibility in our control of behavior um, and, and to be adaptive, which is something that other animals generally don't have. Okay, so since we're in this, uh, we've wandered off into the realm of speculation. Um, mm. <laughs> I was, I was, <laughs> I was uh, okay, sorry, yeah, go on. No, no, I, I, uh, 
Since you're a super expert in this, I would love to hear your thoughts on um, one of my favorite concepts in science fiction. Do you mm-hmm. do you think that perhaps a similarly complex interconnected network uh, could give rise to consciousness and be self-aware, like a very complex AI or something yeah. like that? Do you, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'd have to say I agree with you um, because I, I, I'm a materialist, so I don't believe that uh, there are spirits and souls and if you are a materialist and you believe the brain is a very complex system of of structures and, and neural networks, and frankly, you know the, the number of potential patterns is you know almost infinite. You can't say infinite, but it's almost infinite. Uh, then yes, uh, there's no reason why a sufficiently sophisticated system could become self-aware, um, because otherwise you'd have to have a non-materialist account, which would then introduce um, pixie dust and and spooks and souls and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And whilst they may exist, I'm not denying that they don't exist. I just haven't seen any reliable good evidence for them. And we do know that if you change the brain, you change the self. Uh, You know, so there's a plenty of, there's a lot of good evidence for materialism and precious little for non-materialism. But don't get me wrong. I mean, um, I might, that might sound very reductionist and people don't like reductionism. They don't like the idea that you're simply kind of, you know, a meat machine. Um, we're a very complex meat machine because we're a machine which has evolved in a sea of meat machines. You know, our brains are sharing information, which is why we have such a long childhood. If you think about it, we have proportionally the longest childhood of any animal on this planet. And I don't think that's just so we can play football or sit around loofing about. It's because we need to learn to become selves. We need to learn to become socialized, to become integrated. So we're sharing information and that information is non-material, clearly, because this is uh, this is this is uh, it doesn't have a material base. It, it's word of mouth. It's imitation. It's instruction. It's knowledge, and that's the information which has been distributed on these on these brains that uh, each of us have. So um, it's I I don't find it as as reductionist as people uh, initially think when they hear this. It, it's much more the case that we're a very integrated uh, system, and you know I think we're one of the most social animals on the planet that way. I like uh, I like the label of meat machine. I'm going to use that. That's. Uh... <laughs> Oh, I didn't think. I think it was Marvin Minsky, the AI. Uh, that's why when you mentioned AI, I immediately thought of Marvin. Yeah, they're made uh, of. They're made of meat. We're made of meat. Yeah, we're <laughs> sheets. We're, we're wet and squishy. <laughs> so uh, when we see two identical twins, and mm. we and we notice that they have different personalities, what yep. it, and if we know the self is an illusion, then what is it that we're actually noticing in, in there in that situation? Yeah, that's a good question. Actually, what, what, you know, why isn't the case? Because in part in the book, I make a big argument that because we are social animals, we're socially constructed. So you know, a lot of the aspects of who we are really stand in stark reflection to those around us. You know, the way that we evaluate our self-esteem, for example, is by comparing ourselves to others. And of course, that varies from culture to culture. In the West, we're very individualistic. And so when I say that, you know, we're socially constructed narratives, people say, well, how come then kids, how come twins aren't, you know, uh, you know, why, why are they not, um, you know, how, how come children are so different? Uh, and so then we get into the whole issue about genetics and so forth. Um, well, clearly genes and temperaments, and um, you do inherit a lot in your biology. I'm not denying there is a component which is, is nativist. You know, there's a component which we, we inherit. But that is, um, always plays out in a social environment. And if it was the case that it was always genetic, then identical twins should be absolutely identical on everything. And yet they're not. Um, on all measures of personality, they're generally no more than 50%. Um, the same. So there's a lot of variance, even with genetically identical individuals, which suggests that the environments are playing uh, an important role. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, there's, there's got to be an explanation 
of the combination of the biology, what you, what you get from your parents, and the environments in which you're raised. And I explore this to some extent in the book, talking about the differences between concepts of self in the Far East and, and in the West, because they are different. Now, could you uh, speak more to that? What, is, what are some of the differences of self the, from culture to culture? Okay, so if, you just, if I say, you know, you, you know uh, David, tell me about yourself. Uh, as a typical uh, Westerner, you will probably um, describe yourself in terms of attributes and what you own, things like that, for example, uh, your, your hobbies. Um, if you pose that question to people um, who don't live in individualistic societies, uh, more collectivist, which typically is in the Far East, but you don't even have to go to the Far East. In Africa, for example, there are some tribes that are very collectivist. Um, so, for example, they wouldn't value individual objects in the way that we do. We use objects as a way of kind of extending ourselves. This was a claim that's been made by William James again, but other other marketing people have, have known that we buy things uh, to signal to others who we think we are. You know, we're, we're using this as a way of... Mm-hmm. of um, yeah, advertising who we are. Um, in collect- collectivist societies, if I said, tell me about yourself, they're much more likely to describe themselves in terms of the, their colleagues, uh, the, the communal activities. So they, they see themselves embedded uh, much more socially than an individualistic society. Now, that doesn't mean their brains are different. It's just the way they're used to talking about themselves. But here's an interesting fact. Um, you know, I was telling you about infantile amnesia, amnesia, that you can't remember things from your early childhood. Right. Well, if you try that same test with children from the East, they're much better. They have a much better memory about their early childhood. Hmm. And it turns out that one of the interesting ideas is that because um, the parents speak to them uh, and talk to them uh, about their day, much earlier, and they will describe it and you know who they did what with whom. Uh, what they're doing is they're helping the child construct their identity, and I think when you uh, facilitate that uh, identity through the narrative telling, uh, that enables you to link all the facts together in a more meaningful way, and that's why I think they've got a bit much richer sense of of who they are. So that's that's intriguing. That's amazing. Um, what you also talk in the book about um, uh, the. Um this very specific illusion, uh, you actually write that you say that our self exists uh, or, or yourself exists as the reflection the world holds up to us. Mm. Could you, could you uh, help uh, help on, uh, me understand that? Concept? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course, uh, actually, you know, I, I had a, happened to have a chance reading over your blog, by the way. And I, <laughs> I see you had a uh, you, you did a piece on Baumeister and ego depletion. Right, right. Uh, a fascinating piece, by the way. <laughs> and I'm not just sucking up to you. It's really, really, <laughs> no. really well. Oh, thank you. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> but you talk about ostracism there, and um, this is a this is a really important thing. What, you know, one of the most important things to 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 us as a social species is not to be excluded. Now, I know there's some people who don't like other people and they're hermits, but they're the exception. They're not. They're the weirdos. Okay, the rest of us want to be accepted, and so we will do anything to ingratiate ourselves into the group. And how we feel about ourselves, our happiness. Is, is reflected by those around us. We're so sensitive to criticism. We're, you know, one of the greatest um, anxieties that uh, people have, and this is based on data from the American Psychiatric Association, is public speaking. Speaking in public is one of the greatest fears that people have because they fear that they're going to be evaluated. And, and the fear of rejection is so much that we, we just, you know, we can't abide that. So ourself, is a constant characterization of how we would like to be seen by other people. So that's what I mean by the reflected self. That we, and we will shift that, of course. We will change 
um, the, the nature of that character depending on the circumstances. So I, I talk about multiple selves, not to say that there are actually individual selves, but just the way that that characterization can shift from context to context. And I think that explains uh, a lot of anomalies. It explains, for example, when people say, I wasn't myself last night. Mm. Well, if you weren't yourself, then who were you? Or if you say, oh, it was the wine talking. Well, wine doesn't talk, does it? Mm-hmm. I mean, basically, when we do things which are out, so out of character with the characterization, then we try to excuse it and say that it's not who I really am. But I think, again, that this is a problem of the way that we think about the self as as an individual. Yeah, this is yeah. if you have a and this is just my speculation, but you have a character that you uh, aspire to be. And whenever you fall short of that, that's when you get that icky feeling and you need to explain it to yourself and other people. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if you saw, there's a book, it's just out by, I think it's uh, Bonnie Ware or something like that. She's an Australian palliative nurse. So she looks after the terminally ill. And I think it's called Five Regrets of Dying, where she basically interviewed all these people who were on their deathbeds about if they had any regrets. And the number one regret by far, was the sense that people didn't think that they had been themselves and that they were always trying to please other people. So, you know, when you have the clarity of death looming, people sort of look back over their lives and they, they realize the extent to which they have been living a life shaped by others around them. That's so fascinating. I had a, a, a sociology professor once tell us, tell the class, be careful when you label people because people tend to fulfill the labels that they're exposed to. Absolutely. Yeah. And that work on ostracism, it's fantastic. You know, people, um, when they're ostracized, will become obsequious. They'll do anything to try and ingratiate themselves back into the group. And we've seen that happen. And, and frankly, you know, that's what the problem of teenagers are. Teenagers are. Um, they're trying to establish their self-identity. They've got the pecking order. And that's why they become so self-conscious. It's why boys take risks. You know, it's nothing to do with this uh, brain being immature. I've heard this before. I mean, there might be some brain maturation, but I think it's more to do with the need to establish establish yourself as, 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 you know, bravado uh, and, and need to get yourself different to your parents. In a sense, trying to find who you are is really trying to, you know, stake your territory out as being different to your parents, why, which mm-hmm. is why teenage rebellion is so common in the West, because this is what is culturally what we're supposed to do. And then that also explains why you turn into your parents when you reach your mid-20s. <laughs> your biology wins out. <laughs> that's true. Oh, my God, I am my dad. That happens a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, let me uh, ask one last question before we uh, sum everything up, because this is something I have noticed. I've, you see videos like this on uh, on YouTube. Um, when you undergo anesthesia, mm. you can really feel what you what I would assume is my sense of self slipping away. And, mm. if, you, and if you're someone who is sort of babysitting a person who's getting an operation, you can actually watch as they wake up mm-hmm. their, their sense of self return to them what is it that we're that we're experiencing what is it that we're seeing in those situations well you can see it with just morning i'm mean, waking up every morning it's kind of weird that you know you you kind of lose your consciousness every night and, and somehow the brain reconstructs that character in the morning well we lead fairly structured lives so there's lots of information out there um Although I'm sure every listener's had that experience where they've woken up in a strange place and they just feel that uh, sense of anxiety. You know, when you've, uh, you've, you suddenly find yourself in a new environment, that can be a very anxiety-inducing situation. But yeah, I mean, whether it's, it, it's through anesthetic or it, it's uh, sleepness or drunkenness, um, yeah, the brain can generally recreate the characterization of the cell. Uh, equally, of course, you can see it fractionate under the influence of drugs, under uh, the influence of, um, of, of various uh, you know, um, psychedelics, uh, even alcohol. You know, people's 
um, behavior changes, which is, by the way, when anesthetics, people start, you know, swearing and doing all sorts of things and they become disinhibited because you've basically turned off the frontal lobes. The frontal lobes are the structures which make us so different from the nearest cousins, the chimpanzees. And these are the mechanisms which regulate our behavior. So if you think about all the unconscious processes, the drives, the urges, the need to swear at people, whatever, they're generally kept under wraps. Um, by your frontal lobes, uh, but when you switch those off, then these behaviors come to the come to the fore. But yeah, generally your brain can reconstruct that character, but that's a constant process of reconstruction. And as we get older, of course, you see the progressive loss of that characterization in dementia. Um, that's I think one of the most distressing aspects of the disease is that people that you've known in your life suddenly become a different person as mm-hmm. parts of their brain start to break down. So again, I keep coming back to this this imperative that it must be an, an emergent property of, of the meat machine, which is, is the brain. It's so odd, though, that you, that you can, as you go into unconsciousness or you watch, mm. or you watch someone go into unconsciousness, you would, it, you would think it's all, it, it, uh, if it was a very simple machine, you were just hitting the reset button on, yeah. on their uh, personality. And so when they return to consciousness, mm. then perhaps they would be slightly different as a, as a self. But it's, it's as if uh, as all the systems come back online, the self mm. that you're used to seeing, you're used to experiencing, returns back in full force with nothing lost. It's a... Yeah, it is. But I mean, of course, the changes are subtle. I mean, it does change. Your self changes over the lifetime. And, you know, you, you only have to read things that you wrote when you were 16 or <laughs> you, know, you can suddenly you don't recognize. I mean, there's a sense of continuity. And that's one thing I talk about the book. You do, And that's why the sense of self is so compelling. Um, because it's always with us when we're conscious and, you know, we don't feel that we're changing as such. But on one level, we do know we are changing because, you know, we've, we've all experienced that. But the brain has a whole set of biases, uh, to try and reframe and keep that, uh, continuity of self all the time. So, for example, um, cognitive dissonance. You know, we generally think of ourselves uh, as um, a lot smarter than most people, better looking than most people, and a better sense of humor. Uh, we're all above average, but we can't all be above average. So when we do things which don't fit with that characterization, we reframe it uh, just so we maintain the continuity. So, for example, if you're in a relationship that doesn't work out, usually, not everyone, by the way, but you know, if it doesn't work out, you'll say, oh, the other person was a jerk, you know, or I didn't want that job anyway. So you just reframe everything to fit with this this characterization of someone who doesn't waste time or effort on jobs or people. Um, so we, we've got these uh, ways of changing the story to tweaking it all the time to keep it consistent. Well, so if people are super interested in you and they want to know more about what you're up to, how could they find you on the uh, internet? Oh, I'm all over the place. I'm like a bad rash. Um, <laughs> well, uh, what they might find really interesting are the Royal Institution Christmas Lectures, which I delivered on the BBC in the, in the UK. This is the biggest kind of uh, science lecture for a general public. In fact, it's aimed at teenagers. So if they Google me and, and Royal Institution, they'll, they'll get to that page. Of course, I have a book out, The Self-Illusion, which is uh, getting, you know, it's, it, I think it's really working. I think people are, uh, are, are really interested by it because I just assumed that these things were so obvious. But, you know, you tend to, when you get specialized, you forget what is common sense knowledge and, and, and what is expertise. So that's, that book's around. But yeah, I'm, I'm on YouTube. And so I'm, I'm, I'm around. You'll find me quite easily. And what, and what are you working on right now scientifically? Oh, uh, well, I'm doing a couple things. I'm working with Ardman, you know, the production company who made um, the uh, who make the movies, or the animations for Pixar. Well, they don't work with Pixar, but they work with Spielberg. Uh, Ardman are a Bristol-based company. So we're analyzing children's interpretation, understanding of cartoons, uh, which is a lot of fun. Uh, I am doing another book um, called Brainstorming, 
which is due in uh, January. And then I'm off to the Far East in July to, um, to film the uh, t- television series for the, uh, the Royal Institution Christmas Lectures for the Japanese and, and also in Singapore. So, yeah, I've got a busy summer. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I love everything you're up to. Uh, I consider you a kindred spirit out there in the world. And um, just thank you so much. And if you ever need anything from us, just let us know. Thank you, David. It was a lot of fun. Same here. And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsor. Even if you know your way around a computer, even if you know your way around coding, even if you know how to make awesome things in Photoshop, you know that building a website can be so tough and time-consuming and weird and frustrating. And that's why I use Squarespace. I really do use it. Way before they were a sponsor, when I knew what I wanted to do was make something that people were going to look at and use, I chose Squarespace. My personal website is done with Squarespace. In the future, I'm making something just for this podcast so it'd be easier to navigate and move around. That is going to be done with Squarespace. It's so much easier. It was so much more difficult using the other people that make stuff like this. And if you want a site that looks professionally designed, regardless of your skill level, with no coding required, you want it to be intuitive and easy to use, Squarespace has the -the state-of-the-art technology powering those kinds of websites available to you right now, ensuring security, stability, and it's trusted by millions of people already and some of the most respected brands in the world. It starts at $8 a month, and you can get a free domain name if you sign up for a year. And of course, you're going to sign up for a year, so you get free domain names with this thing. It's fantastic. You can start your free trial today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. And when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, and you will, Make sure that you use this offer code, okay? This is my code. It gets you 10% off of your first purchase. It's just so smart. One word, so smart. If you're going if you're going to stake your claim on the internet, and you really have to in this day and age, you need a website. Squarespace is the easiest, coolest, most attractive way to do it. And you can trust them because they give you 24-7 support. It's beautiful. It's $8 a month. What are you waiting for? Start a trial with no credit card required. Start building your website today. Squarespace.com. Use the offer code SOSMART to get 10% off. And you help Squarespace support this podcast if you use that offer code. So go do it. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. In every episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I read some self-delusion news. We talk about an article. Maybe we go back to the original research. We discuss something new in the realm of self-delusion. And then I eat a cookie made by one of you. In this episode, we're going to talk about this article that appeared in the Atlantic recently. It's so cool. It's called A Sound You Can't Unhear and What It Says About Your Brain. It's written by Alexis C. Madrigal. Now, the article is actually not very long. It goes over some of the information about uh, pareidolia and, uh, you know, about audio illusions and stuff like that. But the focus of the article is actually a clip, an excerpt from WHYY's The Pulse, which is a really cool program. I highly recommend it. And in this particular episode, 
The Franklin Institute's chief bioscientist, Jayatri Das, demonstrates something really, really cool about how your brain makes sense of the world. And so as to not ruin it any further, let me just play the clip that is presented over at The Atlantic in this article. So what you'll hear is a sentence, a spoken sentence, that's been transformed by a computer to sound like gibberish. So... Any idea what they said? Okay, now... You heard the gibberish. I want you to listen to it one more time because once you hear the next part, you will never be able to hear this the same way again. I want you to savor the before of this experience because you can never, for the rest of your life, return to it once you get to the after. Okay, here's the rest of the clip. No. Okay, Uh, you can hear it one more time. Okay, now we'll hear the real sentence. The Constitution Center is at the next stop. Does it make sense that time? Yeah, wait, was that the same? It was the exact same sentence that you heard the first time. No way. (laughs) It's the exact same sentence. Your brain is always using prior information to make sense of new information coming in. So once you know what the sentence is, when you go back and hear the distorted version, you can apply that information and it makes sense. Oh, that is so cool. I love it so much. It's a great example of how the brain understands reality by building models and then interacting with the models, not actually interacting with reality itself. And this is one of those fantastic examples of how expectation plays into that. You participate actively in creating reality from moment to moment. If you want to read more about this, go to theatlantic.com. And the title, the headline is, a sound you can't unhear, what it says about your brain. Feel your brain at work as it transforms gibberish into an intelligible sentence. And inside that article, what you just heard was a clip from WHYY's The Pulse. You can find that over at SoundCloud. It's labeled as an audio illusion. Now, what starts with the letter C? Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that starts with C. Uh, ah, who cares about other things? C is for- On each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I read a piece of self-delusion news or a scientific study, and then right after it, I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or a reader. You can send your recipes to david at youarenotsosmart.com, and if I pick and bake and eat your recipe, you will get a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book. I also will post that recipe and the winner and the photos and everything else over at youarenotsosmart.com as well as the You Are Not So Smart Pinterest page. And we are also building a separate place just for all of this stuff, a website just for the cookies. You'll find that soon. Now, on this episode, what we're going to eat is a peanut butter orange cookie. Now, most people, they usually name the cookies, but Mary Near, who sent this in, did not name the cookie. It's left up to me. I'm just going to call it Stellar peanut butter cookies because she uses that phrase in the, uh, the the email. So stellar peanut butter cookies are awesome. They're made with peanut butter and salt and butter and brown sugar and regular sugar and crunchy peanut butter and peanut butter powder and vanilla extract and orange extract. I know it sounds weird, but it's amazing. And she writes in her email, she loves the boing boing articles that I write that go along with the pieces. Usually. When you hear one of these podcasts, there's also an article that goes along with it that I write for Boing Boing. And you can go to boingboing.net to read all of those. And she writes in the email, I have worked up the courage to submit a recipe 
of my own. I'm a peanut butter addict. I can quit anytime, man. And I'm so juiced up <laughs> because of this stellar peanut butter cookie recipe with PB2, the powdered stuff for extra nuttiness. It may not be your bag, she writes, but I thought I would share it just in case. Oh, it's going to be my bag. Uh, it is going to be fantastic. Mary, here we go. Your cookie, and they're beautiful, by the way. Uh, my wife, Amanda, she did the thing with the fork where you make the hash mark on the top so that when they come out, they look like a peanut butter cookie is supposed to. Here we go. Oh, man. I need to talk, but I don't want to stop. Man, okay. It's so, it is, it's peanut butter and it's orange. Like equal parts, peanut butter cookie and then orange cookie. And you think that won't work, but it so works. It's like when you get a Whitman sampler, you know, the Whitman sampler, the sort of the, the cheap chocolate uh, box of chocolates that go around during the holidays. Those things are fantastic, right? So, um, but when you, when you eat them, I always like to just have no idea what I'm going to get like Forrest Gump. I like to have no idea what the chocolate's going to be, even though it comes with that little um, instruction sheet thing at the top that gives you a, a sort of a blueprint of what's in each one. Whenever I'm eating them, though, every once in a while, you, you'll bite into one and go, uh, I just took a bite of the cookie, by the way. Um, what? This isn't... No. No. This isn't right. What is this? Raisins and coconuts and lemon? Not right. Not right. Wait. Is this... Is there white gravy in this? <clears throat> I need to look at the sheet. And so they pull out the sheet and you go, oh my God, this is a white gravy lemon coconut cluster. Not good. But this, this is the one of those that you would go, hmm, wait, this is peanut butter and orange. Who would ever do this? I don't know who was over at the factory just pulling random levers, hoping to get some sort of raise from inventing the next flavor of Whitman sampler. But whoever did the orange and peanut butter, it's right. And this is the cookie equivalent of that. Mary Near, I... Love this cookie. It's so good. And full disclosure, I actually, um, we made these and we brought them over to some friend's house last night. And everyone was like, I would never have put these two flavors together. But now I will always do it when I make peanut butter cookies. So fantastic. A book is headed your way, Mary Near. I thank you so much for expanding my taste buds and my consciousness. I love it. This definitely is my bag. Oh, that is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. If you want to hear more great podcasts like this one, go to boingboing.net. They have some original shows they make there, and they have been supporting You Are Not So Smart for years now. Please go and check them out. If you want to hear more of these episodes, go through the backlog. You just go to SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes to listen to any of the previous episodes of this podcast. You can also find links to everything that we talk about every single time and show notes for every single show over at youarenotsosmart.com, where you can also learn more about both of my books. And I'm working on a third book right now. As soon as I stop talking, I will go back to working on it. You're going to love it. I'll reveal more in a future episode. Send your cookie recipes to David at youarenotsosmart.com. If I bake your cookie, I'll send you a signed copy of You Are Not So Smart, the book. You can follow You Are Not So Smart on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. On Twitter, it's NotSmartBlog. That's at NotSmartBlog. And I am at David McCraney. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. The ending music that you're listening to right now, that is Banjo Apocalypse. Some of the interstitial music is Banjo Apocalypse. And some of the music beds are by Drew Garraway. 